Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say simply be yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. The word of the Lord. Thank you, Lisa. So it's good to be back here preaching after a, a couple-week break. It was nice to have two weeks off, but we are now entering back into our sermon series that we've been in for about five weeks called Flourish, a sermon series where we're looking at Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, probably His most well-known sermon and some of His most well-known teachings are there in, in that sermon. So, since it's been a little while since we've talked about this, let's reacquaint ourselves with the context here and the passage and the theme of the entire sermon. If you have your Bible, uh, you can look all the way back in Matthew 5, just flip over there to the beginning. I just want to call your attention again to those Beatitudes, these statements of Jesus where He repeats over and over again, blessed are, blessed are, blessed are, blessed are the poor in spirit, those who mourn, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. These Beatitudes, as we've talked about, are really infused into the entire sermon, and they function as the introduction, the setup, and the theme for everything that Jesus is saying in this sermon. There's a scholar named Jonathan Pennington. He wrote a book recently on the Sermon on the Mount, where he argues that the best way to translate that word blessed is actually, in our modern English, flourishing. So he says we should translate that word, flourishing are the poor in spirit. Flourishing are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Flourishing are the peacemakers. They are the sons of God. That this life of flourishing is this life of fullness, of abundance with God at the center. And so I'm, I'm convinced by his argument that Jonathan Pennington is right. I think that's the best way for us to understand this word blessed. It's not just a shallow happiness, it's a deep flourishing. And so the Sermon on the Mount then is Jesus' explanation of how do we recover and live and experience a flourishing life, and not just for ourselves. How can we be people who bring flourishing to others? So we're right in the middle of the sermon. Jesus is going one by one. He's addressing six very practical and everyday issues. And in each of these issues, there was a large misunderstanding of what it looked like to put these things into practice and how important they were in the life of God's people. So we've looked at, these six key, or we've looked at three of these six key and essential pieces to, her, to human flourishing. We've looked at lust and our sexuality, anger. We've looked at non-retaliation and payback. Today, we're going to look at how Jesus focuses in on telling the truth on how telling the truth and being people of integrity and honesty is necessary for our flourishing. It's necessary for us to bring this life of flourishing to other people. So if you were given that, this assignment to list, what are the top five or six things that you think are the most important factors for human beings to flourish 
in this world, what would you put on that list? Or if we asked others, you know, family feud style, 100 people were asked, what are the five most important things for human flourishing? And what would make it up on, onto the board? I don't know if I would have put truth-telling, honesty on there. But after this week, I can see why Jesus pinpointed this particular topic. You know, in our current cultural moment and milieu, I think that truth-telling might start popping up on the family feud list and on our own list. I've, I've mentioned this a number of times, so forgive me, but I have to bring it up again. Many people are saying that we live in a post-truth society, a post-truth world. When it comes to telling the truth and honesty, we have these deep suspicions. We have deep mistrust for all major institutions. It's probably been there a long time for business and marketing. We're always like, well, what's the catch? Yeah, this product is too good to be true. There's got to be a catch. But now it's moved in deeply into government and politics, and we all probably were paying attention to the headlines this week about what's happening at the highest levels of our government. And on, on Thursday, <clears throat> when I was preparing this sermon, the headline was, was just saying, um, Comey says Trump lied. Now, I know there's been responses and there's been all kinds of thing, things that have happened since Thursday, but even just that, however this plays out, whatever you think about it, we have his word versus his word kind of situation at the highest levels of leadership in our government. And so, <laughs> we're pretty suspicious. We have um, a problem with trust when it comes to politics. And surveys and data say trust in CEOs is at an all-time low. Trust in the media is at an all-time low. And also, the data shows very clearly that trust in the church and in clergy is at an all-time low. So you take all that together, and we can clearly see we're living in this culture of deep mistrust, of suspicion. We're jaded. So who can we trust? Is anyone telling the truth? And this week, I discovered this TED Talk by Pamela Meyer. I don't know, maybe you watched it. It's called How to Spot a Liar. 16.2 million people have watched this TED Talk. And so, the whole point of this TED Talk is because everybody's lying, and she starts the TED Talk by saying, look at the person to your left. They are a liar. Look at the person to the right. They are a liar. I'm not going to have you do that and just like turn, turn to the person on your left and say, you are a liar. No, we're not going to do that. But her point is that everybody's lying. People are told, she says, like between 10 and 200, uh, 200 lies per day. So you need to know how to spot a liar. And she gives you the techniques in how to do that. What Jesus teaches us in this passage is a different approach. Rather than expending all our energy on deepening the mistrust and the suspicion of exposing all the lies and the deception out there, as important as that is, Jesus says, let's begin by looking at ourselves. That all those who follow me instead should be working to become people of simple and straightforward honesty. Who can just say yes and no. So as we're walking through what Jesus has to say here, we're going to be looking at it under three points. If you're taking notes, we're going to look at the importance of truth-telling, ways that we avoid truth-telling, and the power 
for truth-telling. So first, the importance of truth-telling. I think telling the truth is just one of those things we kind of take for granted. Until we're, we're lied to, until we're deceived, until we're misled, then we realize the importance of truth-telling as the basis for any real relationship, for society to even function, to exist, let alone flourish. There has to be truth-telling. This week, <clears throat> for my third son, Matthew, for his birthday, he wanted to spend time just one-on-one, me and him, at Disneyland. And so I gave him, he's, he was in charge of the whole time, so we rode the Matterhorn twice, we read, rode Thunder Mountain twice, and we were just over and over riding these roller coasters. And I said, you get to pick dinner. And his favorite dinner at Disneyland are his two favorite foods put together in one dish, a mac and cheese bread bowl. All he eats is bread and mac and cheese, and they're together. It's like his dream dinner. And so we go to the place. It's Pacific Wharf, if you want to know where to get this mac and cheese bread bowl. And I, we go up there, and he's smiling, and he's all ready for this. And I said, one mac and cheese bread bowl. <clears throat> and the guy behind the counter says, we are currently not serving that at this time. I said, what? I said, can you serve the mac and cheese kids meal? He said, Yes. I said, you can't put the mac and cheese from the kids' meal into the bread bowl? He said, we are currently not serving this at this time. I'm like, okay, that's weird. Well, we'll have to figure out something else. So I'm walking out <clears throat> of the restaurant, and then what do I see coming out of the line of all these trays of food? I'm seeing all these mac and cheese bread bowls come out. I'm like, I was just lied to at Disneyland. How could this be? All reality is coming undone for me at this point. So it turned out that they were just out of that in their current serving line. And so Matthew did get his mac and cheese bread bowl, and the world was set right. But for a moment there, I thought, how can this be? What is happening? That's a little bit of a lighthearted example. But it can be much more serious and much more painful for us. When we realize we've been lied to, by a friend, if we realize we've been lied to by our spouse or a family member. If the lie is serious, it all of a sudden feels like, what's real? What can I trust? And everything becomes undone in that relationship. If you're lied to by your company, by your boss, by your neighbor, your trust erodes. You don't know what you can believe and what you can't believe. And it's really Impossible. We can't function like that for long. Thomas Aquinas says this. He says it's impossible for men to live together unless they believe one another as declaring the truth to one another. Truth-telling is essential for any relationship, for any community and society to function. I think this is why Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, addresses truth-telling because Really, no relationship, no community can exist, let alone function without it. So what Jesus is exposing here in in this text is just like the, the laws with regard to murder and life, the laws regarding marriage and sexuality, the laws regarding revenge, in trying to enforce these laws, in trying to keep the rules, the religious and legalistic approach completely missed the entire point behind the law, behind these rules in the first place, which was telling the truth. So what did that look like in Jesus' day? In his day, there was a strategy for trying to enforce truth-telling, 
and to deal with the problem of lying and deceit, and that strategy was through the use of oaths and swearing. So when you really needed people to tell the truth, you said you need to swear an oath on that. Or if you really wanted to convince people, I'm telling the truth, I'm not trying to deceive you here, you would swear and you would make an oath. You would say, I swear by heaven. I swear by Jerusalem. I swear by the earth and my head. And that was very common at the time in everyday relationships and in more legal, formal settings. And we, we still do this today in our, in our legal settings. We have, I know a number of you are lawyers, if you give sworn testimony, you say, I swear, you solemnly swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. And more informally, sometimes we'll say, I, I swear to God, if we really want to convince people, or cross my heart and hope to die. Jesus is saying that this approach to truth-telling is seriously flawed and ineffective. If you look at verse 33, when Jesus says, you have heard it said. He's not directly quoting from the Old Testament here, but he's summarizing how the teachers of the day used a collection of Old Testament passages from Leviticus 19, Deuteronomy 23, and Numbers 30. He says, this is what is being taught. Don't swear something if it isn't true, number one. And number two, whatever oath you make to God, you better fulfill that oath if you're going to make it in God's name. So number one, don't swear anything if it's not true. And two, make sure if you make an oath to God, you fulfill it. The problem with this method of protecting the truth or getting to the truth is that people used it to create two major loopholes to continue deceit and lying. For the first one, they said, well, I wasn't under an oath. So it's okay if I didn't lie. No big deal. I didn't swear. I didn't make an oath. So what's the big deal? I didn't promise. Or secondly, yes, I did make a promise. I did make an oath about that statement, but it wasn't an oath to God. So it's really not that serious. It's not as binding. I just swore to heaven, to earth, to Jerusalem, or by my own head. And Jesus comes in to this common practice and into this perspective, and he offers two major corrections. Correction one is, God is witness to every word that we speak, not just when we swear an oath. That all of what we say, all human speech is made in reference to God. He's witness to everything. And Jesus is saying, even what we think is ours to swear by, he says, by your own head, you're trying to swear so that you're leaving God out of the picture. But he said, you are not even able to control the color of your hair. This hits home for me. I understand this because I've got my gray coming in. Jesus says, you can't even control whether you go gray or not. God is the owner and sovereign over everything about us. And so the point he's making is that God is all-knowing, not just our words, but our thoughts, our intentions. Every word we speak to another person, he is witness to what we say. And so he holds us accountable, not just when we call him as witness. That's his first correction. His second correction is, there's no such thing as two-level or multi-tiered speech, that all speech is equal. We're not more bound to an oath or swearing than to our everyday yeses and noes. It's all the same. Everything we say is equally important. 
And it's equally important that we tell the truth, not just when we swear or make an oath. So Jesus is saying here, he's driving home the point, truth-telling, very important. Second point, our avoidance of truth-telling. Though we, though they in Jesus' day made youth of oaths and swearing and they created all these loopholes to get out of that, that might not be our issue in the way that we kind of navigate our way around the truth. But there are other ways that we avoid telling the truth. We create loopholes for ourselves in our communication. As I was preparing this message, I was noticing that one of the movies, that summer movies, that's getting a lot of publicity is, is Wonder Woman. And as I was uh, just watching the previews and everything, I was remembering, I used to watch Wonder Woman, the show way back in the day, I was remembering her major weapon. Wonder Woman's main weapon is what? The lasso of truth. And with the lasso of truth, she can force the truth out of anyone. And what I, what I learned this week was kind of fascinating is that the creator of Wonder Woman, the comic, was also the inventor of the lie detector polygraph test. He was a psychologist from Harvard. And so part of the point that he's trying to make in this whole character is that truth-telling is key to fighting justice, to restoring justice and fighting off evil. So if you had your own lasso of truth, who might you use that lasso on first? I know parents, you're like, I might have some uses for that in my house. Who started this fight? Who ate all that, that candy? Who did all these things? You have the lasso of truth that you can bust out. But maybe you could turn it around on ourselves and we might ask ourselves, who am I most afraid of, of using that lasso of truth on me? Though we would love to be able to yield that lasso. Right? It's another thing to have it used on us. And Jesus is challenging us to begin with ourselves here. He forces us to ask, how do I avoid the truth? How do I use two-level speech? How do I forget? How do I ignore that God is witness to all the words that I say? And what are the loopholes I use for avoiding truth-telling? Let me just share a few examples, and I have them listed on, on, the, um, on the slides. There are a lot of ways we do this. Sometimes we twist and we spin the truth. We text somebody, I'm heading your way, but I'll be a little late. But the truth is, we totally forgot about the appointment, and we're not even ready. We're just getting ready to get all our stuff so that we can walk out the door. Or we exaggerate. We say to people, you always do this. You never do that. Or we act like we're experts about things because we read maybe one article or saw one tweet on a subject. So all of a sudden, we're experts. We tell white lies. We say to people, yeah, I'm busy that day. But the truth is, we're not busy at all. We just don't want to hang out with that person. Or we use flattery. We can say, that was the most awesome thing ever in the world. And the truth was, it was kind of average, and it was okay. But we wanted to make that person feel better. Or we tell half-truths. Half we omit key details, which we say, that's technically not lying. Or we make excuses. We say, instead of saying, I dropped the ball on that, totally my fault. I am to blame. We say, yeah, I was going to get to that, but these other things came up, and we start making excuses. 
about why we didn't do such and such a thing. So I don't know how you're feeling after seeing that list, but a lot of those are starting to hit home with me. In my reading this week, I came across an experiment that one seminary professor did in his class. He said, okay, they're talking about the concept of truth-telling. He said, this week, no lies. Let's commit to that for one week. They came back and debriefed after that week, and what was the result? Everybody said, I was very quiet this week. I didn't have a lot to say to anybody. Maybe you can try that this week, a revealing experiment. I think the question we need to ask behind all these loopholes that we give ourselves in telling the truth is why? Why do we do that? Why do we avoid telling the truth? And as we dig beneath the surface, the perspective of Scripture, it tells us our avoidance of truth-telling is really at the root and issue of fear and control in a couple ways. We fear and we want to control what other people think about us. The TED Talk, um, Pamela Meyer, the author of that TED Talk said, lying is how we fill the gap between who we wish we were and who we really are. Isn't that true? That what other people think of us Their approval matters so much to us that we hide our mistakes, our flaws, our weaknesses. So people would see us as better than we are or impressive. We also fear and want to control what will happen to us. We lie to get ahead, to get our way, to manipulate other people, to cover up and not face the full consequences of our actions. Or just as we're trying to make life a little bit easier for us. We fear and control what other people think of us. We fear and want to control the things that would happen to us. And so when we see those reasons behind our truth-telling, we're not just avoiding a little inconvenience. We're not just fudging the truth. It goes much deeper than that. Because we end up avoiding the truth about ourselves. And we lose touch with who we really are. We end up avoiding the truth about other people, not being fully known by them. And so instead of having relationships based in love, they're based in manipulation and control. And thirdly, and maybe most deeply, we're avoiding trusting God. We're avoiding His will. We're avoiding His Word for our lives. The Bible teaches that the loss of human flourishing All our suffering, all our separation from God can be traced back to a lie. In Genesis 3, the serpent deceived Eve and Adam. He said, can God really be trusted? Did he really say that? Does he really want what's best for you? Is his love enough? And ever since that lie creeped into the human heart, it's resulted in fear and insecurity. And like Adam and Eve, we want to hide. We want to hide from God, hide from each other, and hide even from ourselves. As Roman 1 says, the strategy of sin is to suppress the truth. It says that we do this exchange. We exchange the truth of God for a lie. So we live in an alternate reality, and sin wants to keep us there. 
So what do we do? How do we become truth tellers? What is the power for becoming a truth teller? We can't minimize or downplay the importance of truth telling. We see how crucial it is. We can't look to external measures to enforce the truth, like a system of oaths and swearing. In order to become truth tellers, we need to overcome our fear. We need to overcome our fear and our insecurity over what people think of us and let go of trying to control our lives. Only then can we live in the truth. And the gospel is that power to set us free. I want to share something that Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote about this. He said it so poignantly. The cross is God's truth about us. And therefore, it is the only power which can make us truthful. When we know the cross, we are no longer afraid of the truth. At the cross, what we see are two things. God tells us the hardest truth that he needs to tell us about ourselves. And he tells us the best truth that he wants to tell us about ourselves. At the cross, we see God tell us those two truths at the same time. That we are more broken, weak, we're more sinful than we ever would want to admit. But at the same time, we are fully loved. We are accepted, we are approved, we are delighted in because of Jesus. So we don't have to live out of fear about what other people think of us because we already have the approval of God. We are fully known by God. He knows the complete truth about us, and He loves us fully. All the weaknesses, all our failures that we try to cover up, He knows, and He loves us. The cross gives us the power to tell the truth even when it's hard, when we may be rejected, when we may have to face consequences, when it might damage our reputation. The cross shows us that there is a cost, there is a price to being truthful. But even when it costs us financially to tell the truth, even when it costs us relationally, relationally to tell the truth, or emotionally, or in our career, or in our reputation, we can face the cost knowing that Jesus paid a greater cost in order to convince us, in order to tell us the most important truths about us. At the cross, those two truths are the truths that set us free. That in Jesus, we see that lying leads us estranged, apart, abandoned from God. But in Jesus and by faith in Him, we can be assured and confident that we are fully and absolutely loved. And so we can be people of the truth. Let me just share a few closing applications If we were to believe this, if we were to live in this reality of the gospel, what, what might it look like in our lives? Just a few things. One, simplification. Jesus says, simply be a person of yes and no. But for some of us, our lives are anything but simple. We would say our lives are very overcomplicated. We have so many commitments, so many roles that we're playing. And many of us are caught living a life 
where we have said too many yeses and not enough noes. And so the yeses that we have said, the yeses that we have committed to, we're barely able to make those commitments, to keep those commitments. And at the root, we say all these yeses. We say, yes, I can do that. Yes, I can be there. Yes, I can do that. Because of the same root cause, we're afraid of letting other people down. We're doing it so other people would see us in a certain way. So before we say yes, we need to step back and ask ourselves, can I give a true yes in this commitment? Or is this yes going to make it more difficult and make it even more hard for me to be a person of committed yes to the things that I know God is calling me to. So we need to be people who can accept our limits and sometimes simplify. Secondly, I'll call it integration. Because we live our lives in so many spheres and we have the added sphere of living our lives virtually in social media and in technology, sometimes we can be different people in different places. Jesus' call is a call to integrate. The, the root word for integration or integrity is integer one, wholeness, to be the same no matter where we are. And I think that's important in how we engage in social media, both in what we share and how we take it in. It doesn't mean broadcasting everything to the world about ourselves, all our failures and junk, but to be cautious about what we're portraying and to be cautious about the effect of how what others are portraying about their lives that seem to be so happy and everything's going well, and look at all their accomplishments about how that is affecting our lives. Thirdly, last application, transformation. This call of Jesus to be people of honesty is something we as the church need to take to heart. It means that the church... Out of all communities, in a world and in a culture of so much mistrust, so many broken promises, needs to be a place of honesty and safety. If you have honesty without safety, that tears people down, that hurts others, that's just bluntness. If you have safety without honesty, that accepts and protects people, but it doesn't challenge people to grow and to change. This week I noticed something that i never seen before in both uh, the letter of Paul to the Colossians and the letter of Paul to the Ephesians. He describes a transformation process as putting off the old self and putting on a whole new self. That that's what the transformation process, that's how the gospel works in us. We're actually being remade by God. And the very first follow-up that he gives in both of those letters of what it looks like to be completely new people, to be transformed people. Colossians 3.9, he says, do not lie to one another. That our relationships in the church need to be marked by honesty. And in Ephesians 4, he says, put away falsehood from each other. And I thought that was so striking. That Paul says the first thing that needs to take place in this transformation process is you need to be a person of honesty. Of course, that's matched with knowing that because of the gospel, you have all the safety in the world to be weak, to be broken, and that those two things, as we speak the truth in love to each other, that's how we in community experience the transformation of the gospel. That leads us to our time of communion this morning. We will be celebrating this meal together. This meal is meant to take us right to the cross. 
that we not only hear the most important truths about ourselves, that though we are sinful, we are deeply loved. We don't just hear that, but we get to touch it and taste it and feel it and take it in and receive it. In our doubting, in our insecurities, and in our fears, God knows we need reminders. And so he says, do this in remembrance of me, that I am the God who came into your brokenness to take it upon myself, and I am the God who loves you despite all the ways you want to avoid the truth, that this truth, that you are loved in Jesus, is meant to set you free. So this morning, as we move to this time of communion, let those truths sink in as you come forward and as you eat. Please pray with me. God, you are a God of truth. We thank you that you came to show us the truths that we so needed to hear. The things that we want to hide from and avoid about ourselves. You know about all of them and you love us. You paid the price for our deceit, our lying, the big and the small. So that we might live in the truth, so we might experience the setting free power of being people of the truth. And so, Lord, I pray that you would, you would help us be people of integrity, of honesty, that we would have that rare combination of truth and love as individuals and as a church. And I pray that you would use this time where we come forward to celebrate this meal together, that you would use it. That you would use it to help us sense the full forgiveness and cleansing we have for all the ways that we fail and to be sent forth empowered by your love to be people who love and speak and cherish the truth. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.